Good morning. Let's take out your copy of the scriptures. Turn to Luke chapter 10. The passage this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Let me remind you before I read our text that what we are about to read is nothing less than the living and abiding Word of God, and so please listen carefully. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we come this morning to what just might be the single most well-known teaching of Jesus. Uh, Really what might be one of the most well-known stories ever told by anyone, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Even people who have never opened a Bible, most of them are at least familiar with the the contour of this narrative, and uh, even those who aren't familiar at all with the story itself, well, they've at least heard the phrase, Good Samaritan. Uh, We have Good Samaritan hospitals, uh, and Good Samaritan charities, and Good Samaritan laws. Pretty much any news article that covers a seemingly selfless good deed, it's almost like a law of journalism, right? That it has to reference this parable. Did a quick Google Google News uh, search yesterday. There was a Good Samaritan rescues toddler who wandered onto roof. Uh, There was Good Samaritan saves driver who swerved into creek. There was Good Samaritan permanently demolishes Yankee Stadium. <laughs> Made the last one up. But you get the point. Right? Any good and noble and worthy deed is necessarily tied to this story. But in spite of how well-known this story is, or maybe because of how well-known this story is, 
I think by and large, it's a story that's been misunderstood. And not just by secular society, but also by the church. And on the spectrum of misunderstanding, maybe we have two extremes. Uh, on one hand, uh, you have some who will make this story into just a straight-up allegory of Jesus. Uh, the church fathers, guys like Origen and Augustine, they were kind of big into this kind of interpretation where every single aspect of the story represents something about the gospel. And so, for example, the man is Adam, Jerusalem is heaven, and Jericho is the world. The man leaving Jerusalem for Jericho represents the fall. And the robbers along the path are Satan, and the man being beaten is the curse of sin. The priest is the law, the Levite is the prophets, and they can't help the man. But of course, the good Samaritan is Jesus. He binds up the man's wounds, he brings him to the inn, which is the church. And of course, the Samaritan's return is speaking in tongues. Now I'm just making sure you're paying attention, right? It's obviously Christ's second coming. Uh, you gotta admit, right? that's, that's interesting. It's kind of cool, kind of fun. But that's just not the point that Jesus is making. And not just because parables are not meant to be allegories, but also it'll become clear when we study the context, the context of this parable, that that's just not Jesus' intention here. On the other hand, and this is probably how most people who misunderstand this parable do so. You've got this social gospel interpretation where, where this story becomes entirely about doing good to your fellow man. And so the point of this story is just be kind to people, help people in need, be a good Samaritan. And the essence of Christianity then boils down to compassion and mercy ministries. Now, there's certainly elements of that here. Like, we cannot leave this story with no conviction at all about how we should love and show mercy and show compassion to others. But that's not the main point of this story either. So, if it's not a fancy pants allegory, and it's not a social gospel story, well, then what is it? What is the meaning of this parable? Why does Jesus tell this story? How are we to read and understand this passage? Well, let's consider now, point number one, the context of the story. Point number two, the content of the story. And then point number three, the conclusion of the story. So point number one, the context of the story. The context of the story begins in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A lawyer stood up. Now, you should not have in your mind right now a, a Nathan Santa Maria lawyer or a Tony Ford lawyer with the LSATs and bar exams and all that kind of fun stuff. No, this man is a lawyer in the sense of the Jewish law. He is a scholar who has studied the Old Testament for a living. These guys were experts when it came to the law of Moses, the traditions, the interpretations surrounding it. 
Sometimes you'll see them referred to in the Gospels as scribes. Here's the thing. As those who've been in this Gospel, this Gospel of Luke, for ten chapters already, like as careful readers of the Gospel of Luke, as soon as we read, a lawyer stood up. Like our, our spider senses ought to be tingling here because we know that these guys are generally speaking, bad news. In Luke chapter 5, who is it that accuses Jesus of blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is it that grumbles about him eating with tax collectors and sinners? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Or in Luke chapter 6, who is it that watches Jesus carefully closely to see if he would break any of their Sabbath traditions so that they might find a reason to accuse him. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Luke chapter 7, look at what it says in verses 29 and 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but... The Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And last but not least, remember what Jesus himself prophesied in Luke 9:22: The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, lawyers, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So we already know, like from the first nine chapters of Luke, we already know that these lawyers, these are the guys who oppose Jesus and his teachings, who are watching him closely to accuse him, who've rejected the purpose of God, and who are eventually going to kill him. And so immediately, like as soon as we see that a lawyer stood up, presumably while Jesus was teaching and everybody was seated. A lawyer stood up. We know something's about to go down. And our suspicions are confirmed when we read that the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's either trying to stump Jesus or catch him in his words saying something that goes against their law or, or entrap him in some way, make him look foolish. His intentions in asking this question are not sincere. And if you have any doubts about that, just look ahead to his response in verse 29. But he, the same lawyer, desiring to justify himself. So his motives are not pure. He is opposed to Jesus. He is trying to test Jesus. But now look at his question. This is not one of those silly hypotheticals to test him. Like you remember the one about the lady who marries seven brothers who all die? In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the man be? I mean, can you imagine being the seventh brother? Like, yeah, I just really feel like the Lord's calling me to singleness. You know, I really want to marry you. That's a silly hypothetical. That's a ridiculous hypothetical. Jesus handles it masterfully. But that's a silly question. But this question in our text, this is not a silly question. A teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
That's a really good question. That's a really important question. We're talking about eternal life here. And when he's talking about eternal life, when the Bible references eternal life, it's not just referring to living forever, like a duration of time, life after death. Because all people are immortal souls. So all people have eternal life in that sense. Now, what this man is referring to here is the nature of his eternal existence. This is the difference between spending eternity in the fullness of joy or eternity in judgment. And so this is a really good question. This is the most important question you can ask. But now look at Jesus' answer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now he turns the lawyer to the law that he knows so well. And he says, why don't you tell me what the law says? And the lawyer's ready. I mean, this guy is no slouch. He's an expert. So he goes straight to the law. He starts with Deuteronomy 6.5. It's a, a verse that every faithful Jew would have recited twice a day, every day. Part of what was called the Shema. The Shema means hear in Hebrew, and that's because the first word of the passage is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the most famous part of the Shema is what the lawyer recites here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he adds to that Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that, that's a good answer. That's a great answer. And so Jesus says, you have answered correctly. As in, yes, Mr. Lawyer, that is the correct answer. But it's what Jesus says next that is so important. Like if we miss this, we miss the entire point of this narrative. He says, do this and you will live. Do this. Because it's one thing to know the right answer. To be able to eloquently express the right answer. That's the easy part. But do this. I mean, let's just pause to think about what that entails. Think about what this lawyer himself is saying that he must do to inherit eternal life. Love the Lord your God, sure, but you can't just inherit eternal life by loving God in this undefined, uh, amorphous, kind of nebulous way. No, it's by loving God entirely. That's what's meant by the four alls in that sentence. With all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And it's not so much calling attention to four different parts of your being. That's just stressing the entirety of your being. As if to say, you must, at all times, with all of yourself, in all ways, undivided, undistracted, uncompromised, love the Lord your God. Have you done that, Mr. Lawyer? 
I mean, even if that said, you shall love the Lord your God with most of your heart and most of your soul and most of your strength and most of your mind, he still would have fallen short. But all? This man doesn't stand a chance. And then add to that, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, that is not loving your neighbor in this kind of undefined and amorphous and nebulous way. Specifically, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Like the Bible says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. We love ourselves. And that kind of all out, hold nothing back, whatever it takes love that we show ourselves, that's how we are to love our neighbor. Have you done that, Mr. Lawyer? Do this and you will live. Elsewhere, Jesus says that these two laws, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is, if you love the Lord your God perfectly in this way, and if you love your neighbor perfectly in this way, then you're necessarily going to keep the whole law, all the law and the prophets. And if you keep the whole law, like if you do this, well, congratulations. You have earned your salvation. You are perfect. You have merited eternal life. You will live. The only problem which I hope you've picked up on by now, is that we can't. We're sinners. We cannot be perfect. And even one violation of the law immediately disqualifies us from God's perfectly holy standard. James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law, all the law and the prophets, the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Do this and you will live? Yes, that is true. You have answered correctly. The only problem is we can't. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He is exposing this man's heart. He's exposing this man's self righteousness. Remember, this guy is a lawyer. He's a scribe. He is one of the Jewish elite. He is one of those who are characterized elsewhere as justifying themselves before men, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Like this guy thinks that he has eternal life. He thinks that he's righteous enough for God. And so Jesus turns him to the law to expose his self-righteousness. It's kind of like what Jesus does with the rich young ruler. Some of you will be familiar with that story. We'll eventually get to that. It's in Luke 18. 
the rich young ruler asks Jesus the same exact question as this lawyer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And just like with the lawyer, Jesus sends him to the law. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And then he lists some of the Ten Commandments to point out the ways in which he falls short. But what does the rich young ruler say in response? All these I have kept from my youth. He is blinded by his self-righteousness. And it's a facade that only begins to crumble when Jesus points out his attachment to his riches. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What Jesus does here with this lawyer, it's very similar. He turns the man to the law and its perfect standard to expose his self-righteousness. But now look at the lawyer's reaction. It's not one of brokenness. It's not one of conviction. It's not one of godly sorrow that then leads to repentance. This is not him crying out from the bottom of his heart, God be merciful to me, a sinner. No, Luke tells us exactly what's going on in his heart. In verse 29, he's seeking to justify himself. So he asks this follow-up question. And who is my neighbor? You see what he's trying to do there? He realizes he's kind of trapped. Because he just said with his own mouth, quoting the law of God, he is a lawyer, that if he's going to inherit eternal life, he's got to perfectly love God and perfectly love neighbor. Now maybe you can kind of get away with claiming that you love God perfectly because you know, no one can really see into your heart. But the whole thing about loving others as you love yourself, that's the kind of thing where your shortcomings, they're visible and they're open and they're obvious for other people to see. And so he's got to save face here. He's got to protect his image, desiring to justify himself. He's going to try to get off on a technicality. Who is my neighbor? Because if he can limit who his neighbor is, if he can just lower the standard, well, maybe he stands a chance. It's kind of like, I've always wanted to dunk a basketball. I've never really come that close. And really, it doesn't matter how much exercise I do or like plyometrics or jumping drills. I'm not going to be able to dunk a basketball. But... If I lower the rim enough, like on an eight-foot rim, I am Vince Carter. (laughs) That's basically what the Jews did back then. They tried to lower the standard by limiting the definition, limiting the concept of neighbor. So most Jews would say that it's only your fellow Jew who is your neighbor. Gentiles are not your neighbors. And the Pharisees went even a step further. They would say that only your fellow Pharisee is your neighbor. I only have to love my fellow Pharisee. And everybody outside of this newly narrowed definition of neighbor, well, they would say, and this is not in the Old Testament, 
But the rabbis would teach. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's an idea that Jesus had to correct in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the lawyer turns to Jesus here. Okay, Jesus, you know what the Jews think. You know what the Pharisees think. You know what the rabbis are teaching. But what do you say? Who is my neighbor? And he's hoping that whatever answer Jesus gives, it'll allow him to continue in his delusion of self-righteousness. That whatever answer Jesus gives, the narrower the better, that he'll still be able to say, yeah, I'd do that. I'm still good to inherit eternal life. Friends, do you see how blinded this man is? And you say, how can this man, he is a scribe, he is a lawyer, he knows the word, he's wise and understanding. How is he so blinded to these things? And that's where we're reminded of last week's passage. Remember verse 21? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding like this lawyer and revealed them to little children. Point number one, the context of the story. Brings us now to point number two, the content of the story. And I assume you all know the story pretty well. You've got this guy. He's presumably a Jewish man. Uh, He is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that was a a 17-mile journey. It was a a treacherous one because it was a very steep decline. Uh, Jerusalem is very high in altitude. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is very low. It's about 1,000 feet below. And so uh, just the precipitous drop in altitude, you can... Imagine how the, the grade of the path could be potentially hazardous. But what made it even more hazardous is that the path was notorious for robbers, thieves. They would hide in the caves and then they would ambush the victims. Well, here's this guy. He's making this journey and he gets jumped and not only robbed, but he's beaten very badly. He is left for dead. Now, who knows what kind of critical condition he would have been in, but it's bad. But, wouldn't you know it, by chance, verse 31, a priest comes down the same road. A priest heading from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably just finished serving on his temple duty in Jerusalem. And so he's going back home to Jericho where he lived. Priests were sons of Aaron. Priests were men called by God to serve him in the holy work of the temple, uh, taking care of the things of God and performing sacrifices and offerings. Like, this is the professional clergy back then. And so surely, this priest will show mercy and help. But now he passes by. He passes by on the other side. Now maybe there's like, considerations of ritual purity Like you would have become unclean if you touched a dead body. Maybe he was worried that the robbers were going to come back 
Maybe he's just in a rush to get home. Uh, we, we don't know because there's nothing said about his motives or his thought processes at all. All we know is that he passes by on the other side without helping this injured man. But not to worry, because here comes a Levite. How about that? Uh, Levites are a broader class than priests, and so all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. All apples are fruits, but not all fruits are apples. Same thing. Well, not the same thing, but you get the idea. Uh, Levites typically attended to the temple, the holy things. They were like assistants to the priests in many ways. And so again, this is a member of the clergy, the Jewish clergy. Surely he will show mercy, compassion to this suffering man. But now he too passes by on the other side. Now Jesus, he is the master storyteller. He is apparently familiar with the rule of three and storytelling And so this third guy, like we are anticipating that the story is about to take a turn with this third character. Maybe we're expecting a layman, just an ordinary Israelite. But no, it's a Samaritan. It probably doesn't evoke any strong emotions in us. Even those of us who know that the Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other. Remember, this is a Jewish audience, a first century Jewish audience who is there as Jesus is telling this story, as Jesus says, but a Samaritan had compassion. There would have been like this visceral reaction amongst the hearers. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And not only do they have no dealings, they absolutely hated each other To the point that when the Pharisees are thinking of like the most insulting and mean thing they could say to Jesus, what do they call him? John 8, 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And so in this third character, Jesus uses the most provocative character imaginable. And it's this Samaritan. This Samaritan who, unlike the priest and unlike the Levite before him, He goes to the half-dead man and he uses the the wine and the oil that he was carrying to attend to this man's injuries. Wine to prevent infection and oil as a soothing agent. He binds the man up, presumably using his own clothes. Because remember, the man was stripped of his clothes. And he puts the man on his animal, which means that he's walking, and he takes him to an inn takes further care of him, we know that he at least spends the night taking care of him because he only leaves the next morning. And then he pays for a few weeks' lodging in advance and basically leaves his credit card there. Whatever this guy needs, just give it to him. Charge it to me. This is benevolence and kindness and mercy to like the nth degree. He gives of himself. He gives of his time. He gives of his money. He gives of his stuff. He gives everything to sacrificially love this man. What an amazing illustration of the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. From all people, a Samaritan. Point number two 
the content of the story. Which brings us now to point number three, the conclusion of the story. Jesus concludes the story by asking yet another question. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man rightly replies, so he's two for two for the day, the one who showed him mercy. But do you see what Jesus just did there? The man asks, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus tells a story, and given the lawyer's original question, you might expect Jesus to conclude by asking, so Mr. Lawyer, was the wounded man a neighbor? Does he fall into the category of people you should consider neighbor? But that's not the point of the story at all. Like, if Jesus wanted to answer that question with a story, it would have made more sense for three men to get robbed and beaten and left for dead, and then the traveler would have to decide who to help. Like, who is worthy of my compassion? That story would answer the question of who is my neighbor. But that's not what our story is. And so Jesus turns the man's question on its head First, by telling a different story than you might expect. And then, by changing the question. You see how Jesus changes the question? From who is my neighbor to who proved to be a neighbor. And so he changes the subject from who do I have to love to am I a loving person? The former is a mostly theoretical question that seeks to divide and categorize people. The latter is an intensely practical question that gets right at our hearts. And it's a question that the lawyer, with any amount of biblical introspection and self-examination and uh, any right assessment of his own life against the word of God, where the lawyer would have to conclude, no, I'm not a neighbor. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a loving person. Like if the Samaritan in this story is an illustration of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, I have to admit, this is not me. If that's how I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, Like Jesus says at the end, you go and do likewise. Then I have not kept this commandment. I fall woefully short. And remember the context. Remember the original question, the first question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because if I fall woefully short of the commandment to love my neighbor as myself, then I will not, I cannot, on my own merit, inherit eternal life. And so you see, the story of the Good Samaritan is not 
primarily to be an example for us. Like, hey, you should go show mercy and be kind to strangers like this Samaritan. That's not to say that you should not show mercy and be kind. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, Zechariah 7, 9. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, Micah 6, 8. Like those who have been shown the great love and mercy and kindness of God will, in response to that great love and mercy and kindness of God, display those things to others. But that's just not the main point of this story. The main point of this story is not so much that you should love in this way. The main point of this story is that you don't love in this way. Ralph Davis puts it helpfully, quote, The good Samaritan does not preach to us our duty, but reveals that we have not met that duty. So this fictitious Samaritan of this story, he's going to rise up at the judgment with the self-righteous, and he's going to condemn them. Because in spite of their professions of having kept the law, of having loved their neighbors as themselves, they did not go and do likewise. Point number three, the conclusion of the story. As you're reading this passage, and you come to the end here, you might say, wait a second. Luke, you, you can't just stop there. Tell us what happened. What happened with the lawyer? Does he respond? Surely that is not how this dialogue ended. Surely somebody said something else. We can't help but notice that Luke finishes this story well, unfinished. But see, we've seen Luke do this before. Y'all remember the end of chapter 9? Those three seemingly hesitant, divided disciples that Jesus calls to himself. How Luke never records their response to Jesus' rebuke. I think he's doing something similar here. Like he is intentionally leaving this story open-ended. Because the point of including this parable in his gospel is for us, the reader, to ask ourselves these same questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. And in response to the, the self-righteous part of us that thinks, oh, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus says, really? Because to love your neighbor as yourself means to love like this Samaritan did. To love selflessly and extravagantly and sacrificially like this Samaritan did. Can you go do likewise? Do you go and do likewise? The answer is, we don't. We can't. 
so often we are much more like the priest and the Levite. The selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-interested, lovers of self. We are not the neighbors we can in our self-righteousness suppose, us, suppose ourselves to be. And here's the thing. If we can't even love our neighbor perfectly, whom we have seen, well then how can we even begin to claim that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, a God whom we have not seen? So friends, let me ask, to use the language of last week's text, has God revealed to you the point of this parable? Have you been brought to the end of yourself? To the end of trusting in your own righteousness? To the end of relying on your own good works to earn you eternal life? Have you realized that you do not keep the two great commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. Have you seen that in and of yourself you will not inherit eternal life? If so, if you've truly understood the bad news, then hopefully you will have ears to hear the good news. If you realize that you're spiritually dead, you will look to the one who alone has the words of eternal life. If you see that you are lost, then you'll see that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Because the same Jesus who tells this parable, he has already set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for his people. Even though he was the only man to ever fully keep the great commandments. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, with all his mind. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Even though he lived the perfect life that you and I and this lawyer never could, he died on the cross for our sins, for all of the sins of those who would trust in him. For all of the sins of those who would forsake their own righteousness, trust only in his that we might be forgiven. That we might be forgiven of all of the ways in which we have not loved God and neighbor perfectly. For all the times that we find ourselves much more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan. He bore all of that sin. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserve. A wrath that would have manifested itself in an eternity in hell. He bore that for sinners like us. And then he rose again from the dead three days later to prove that he had indeed paid for every last sin of every one of his people. And that Jesus stands to be your savior today. And that Jesus stands to save any and all who would call upon his name, who would renounce their own righteousness, who would confess that they have not loved God and neighbor perfectly, who would see 
much more priest and Levite in themselves than they might originally care to admit, and thus cry out to him for salvation. And so friends, look to Christ. That's where this parable is supposed to take us. That's where the law is supposed to take us. That's where our sins and our shortcomings are supposed to take us. To Christ, right, that we might have this eternal life. So you are not a good Samaritan. And you are a bad sinner. But rejoice in this. You have a perfect Savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work your word in the hearts of your people. Father, we pray for any in this room who would be bound in their sin and self-righteousness that you would, even today, give them eyes to see the glory of Christ and his gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.